uh, remember when it was just us like 10 weeks ago and it was so cool and now like the women want us to take baths regularly and we have to like not fart in public. I can't believe it. Oh, hello. You are listening to Nashville Demystified, where I get to know the city better by talking with the folks who live, work, agitate, make art, uh, do all those sorts of things here. My name is Alex Steed. Nashville Demystified is brought to you by Knack Factory, a video content production company with offices here in the city. And Nashville Demystified is distributed by We Own This Town, a collection of podcasts made by Nashvillians. There are podcasts about pop culture, local music, art thieves, and Bill and Ted. What more could you need? Today, I talk about, and I hate how timely this conversation is, but I talk about Nashville's history of white supremacist violence with author and historian Betsy Phillips, specifically who talk about bombings that took place over a half a century ago. But as this week reminds, the mass violence of white supremacists is something that is not a part of our history. It's part of an ongoing reality that goes back to the very start of the country itself. One quick point of interest, uh, Betsy reminds that bombings used to be the preferred method of violence in these types of strikes, largely because dynamite was so easy to come by. You could just go to a store and very affordably buy dynamite. When dynamite became more difficult to buy or to come by, the rate of bombings went down. Imagine that. We talk about all of this because Betsy's book, Dynamite Nashville, the KKK, the FBI, and the bombers beyond their control is coming out on third man books uh, in late 2020, early 2021. In it, she's trying to solve three unsolved integration era bombings, or at least explain why they haven't been solved. Uh, What she has found is that the bombings were part of a vast network of bombings that took place throughout the South, which were precursors to some of the most famous violence of the 1960s. Meaning, in short, that if these bombings had been solved and that network disrupted, many of the tragedies of the 1960s could have been avoided. The three bombings are Hattie Cotton Elementary School on September 10th, 1957 is the culmination of the first day of integrated first grade in Nashville, which was September 9th, but the bomb didn't go off until after midnight. The Jewish Community Center on March 16th, 1958, the Confederate underground took credit for this bombing, and Councilman Z. Alexander Luby's home on April 19th, 1960. Thankfully, no one died in the explosions. Luby, aside from being a city council person, was also the preeminent civil rights attorney in the state. He was the lawyer for the plaintiffs that forced national schools to desegregate, and he was one of the lawyers for the sit-in protesters. Despite the weighty nature of our conversation, uh, there is a lot of levity and joy, I assure you. We talk about trying to understand how to live in a world that, while it has always been mad, uh, has taken a turn towards wearing that madness like a badge of pride. It's a roller coaster ride, but Betsy is a delight. Side note, I came upon by way of reading her writing in Native Magazine. Her book, Jesus Crawdad Death, was published by Third Man Books last year. When we were set to record this interview, I lost one of my dogs. Um, I went out and saw that my dog had chewed herself free from a tether. Um, one, one of my dogs would just stay and hang out and just probably let me know that she'd chewed her way out. This was the dog that wouldn't do that. <laughs> and she just ran out into the wild and I was pretty sure I was not going to see her again. Um, and she was gone for a couple of hours. Uh, uh, she's the type of dog that is attracted to traffic, you know? Um, but 
Fortunately, a large uh, summer thunderstorm downpour came and flushed her out, and I found her close to the house. But it made me significantly late for this interview with Betsy. Um, you did not need to know that, I guess, but I, I wanted to just use it as an opportunity to thank Betsy, not just for her time, but for her patience with me in that instance. She was extremely generous, and I am grateful. I took off last week unexpectedly. Um, I retreated to New England with a handful of obligations and shocker, I just enjoyed being disconnected so much I couldn't bring myself to connecting <laughs> further than I had to. I'm sure you can relate. Um, well, thanks for bearing with me and for returning. And thanks for all of the lovely feedback on the Jim Varney slash Ernest P. World miniseries. Um, it was a blast to put together. Before starting this, I had no idea the character had such a strong Nashville connection and it turns out a lot of longtime Nashvilleians didn't either. Before we get to Betsy, um, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and consider giving a review if you can and sharing with a friend. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Nashville Demystified, and we are on the Offering Thoughts of Prayers instead of Actual Policy Solutions, that is Facebook. If you have any feedback that you want to send to me directly or ideas for future shows, you can reach me at podcast at knackfactory.com, podcast at k-n-a-c-k-dash-factory.com. All right, on to Betsy. Um, yeah, I guess I just think of myself as a writer, which is weird because like I haven't written fiction in like a year, basically. I finished that book up and then I was like now, like, I'm doing this bombing project. I'm trying to solve these three integration era bombings here in Nashville, which has ended up just being, like, a giant, terrible rabbit hole. Um, but in real life, I'm the marketing manager at Vanderbilt University Press. I wrote for the Nashville scene for a million years. I just recently quit there. And that's it. I just kind of stumble around being lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like anyone who writes past the age, and I, I wrote professionally for a long time, I feel like anyone who writes past the age of like 22 yeah. should describe it as we stumble around being lucky. <laughs> we, yeah. make, we make a lot of our own luck, but still. Right. No, I, I'm just constantly like, so I fell somehow into writing for Third Man. Mm, sure. And, and that, can you just describe what the, I'm sure a lot, most people know what that is, but what is Right. That? So Third Man Records is Jack White's like recording empire. And then they also have a book division, which mm. is third man books. Um, so they published my collection of short stories and then they're going to publish my bombing book anyway. Like, but having been a writer, as I'm sure, you know, like it's just so different because they treat everybody like talent. All talent is talent. Mm -hmm. And when you're an author, like if you show up for a book event, they hand you a glass of water and they tell you to like sit by the stage and wait. But at Third Man, it's like you go to the green room. There's <laughs> all this liquor. There's like every kind of soda pop you could imagine. Somebody's always coming in to check on you and make sure you're okay. And you need private space to like get ready to read. <laughs> and it's just like the first time I did an event there, they said, Could you be here by six? And I was like, Okay, well, I'm going to have to leave work early, go home, eat real fast, mm. and come back downtown 
because I can't wait until after the event to eat or I'll be so grouchy. So I fly back home, stuff my face with whatever. And of course, I get there and they have pizza because, yeah, yeah, yeah. like, and I'm just like, what is going This isn't how book publishing works. Sure. You know, it's pizza. how book publishing worked once. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And I guess I shouldn't, like, tattle on it because I don't no. want them to be like, oh, Betsy would be fine if we just, like, threw a bottle of water at her and made her stand outside. But <laughs> yeah, there was a really strange time in American history, and I'm sure you run across it while looking up bombings when writers were respected people. <laughs> Right? <laughs> yeah, and you might be afraid. Oh, ooh, a writer is going to be coming and asking me questions. <laughs> what, so tell me, okay, I, there are a lot of things I, I'd like to talk about. Um, but can you just say, so when I asked you if you would be on the podcast, because I came across your writing in um, in a, a Native. Right. Um, and I came across an excerpt from this book. Yes. And this book is called... Where's the book? It's called Jesus Crawdad Death. And it's what a, it's a beautiful cover. I mean, the cover right. is beautiful. It's, it has gold embossing. It's amazing. <laughs> it is so amazing. That's fantastic. So I came across I came across um, an excerpt from this, and I told you I wanted you to be on the podcast. And what did you warn me? You were like, just so you know, these are the things. These are all that I can talk about right now. It sounded like your research now. Yes, right, right. Dead people, racists, and dead races. But really. <laughs> Is that the title of no, this book? No, no, no. <laughs> no uh, Mostly the dead races part right, is my favorite. Right. No, the title of the next book is Dynamite Nashville. Mm. The title is set. I've been wrestling with the subtitle, but today I think I've nailed it. The KKK, the FBI, and the bombers beyond their control. Okay. Excellent. Right? That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm That's really fantastic. happy with it. I've been trying to come up with something that would immediately let people know that we're about to go into like what the fuck land. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. Or we're about to go into like if we were in 2016, it would be what the fuck right. land. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But right. now it's we live in such a vintage age. Yes. <laughs> right. Everything old is new again. Oh my I, God. I always have to remind myself when I'm like reading through old stuff and they're like, we're going to unite the right. And I'm like, Oh, the 1950s, right? Right, 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 right. <laughs> it is amazing how little the rhetoric has changed. Sure. And I'm also, because, you know, I am i don't know how much you pay attention to living racists, but um, many controversies. You know, they're always sleeping with each other's wives mm-hmm. and beating up their father-in-laws and stuff. And that's also old behavior. Like, yeah. Yeah. For a bunch of people who think they're the greatest, they sure hate each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Which I, I, I just think, like, you'd think when they all got together and they looked around a room and were like, there's only five other people in this room that I don't want to kill. Yeah. That, like, it would click in. Oh, maybe we're not that great. Sure, sure, sure. Like, yeah. where are the supreme white people? Yeah. I haven't run into a lot of them. And it seems like the ones, like, the only supreme white person. And I, I, I mean... We just gotta say it is like Chris Evans, and he's, and he seems cool about it. Right, he doesn't seem to be. Right. <laughs> so, okay, so why is this? Can you just explain like broad overview of like what these bombings are? Sure. And sure. and why they why they drew your attention? Right. Well, so there were three integration era bombings here in Nashville that remain unsolved, or that they're just. I guess that's it. There were other bombings, but like, because people were all the time blowing up like 
trucking companies or there was like a series of barbershop bombings, but none of those were related to integration. So these three bombings, there was the Hattie Cotton Elementary School bombing Mm. in September of 57, the Jewish Community Center bombing in March of 58, and then Councilman Z. Alexander Luby's house was blown up in April of 1960. So the year before the 60th anniversary of the Hattie Cotton bombing, I thought, well, I'll just I thought it would be like Birmingham, where everybody knew who did the stuff. It just never came to trial. Right. So I wanted to um, just say, like, I wanted in, in a piece for the scene, I wanted to say, here's what happened. Let's just say it out loud and have it on the record. But then I started asking around, and nobody did know. It wasn't like Birmingham, mm. where it was some open secret. So I started to get. You know, there's like that moment when you're a writer where there's like the hook. And my hook was like the thing that I could not make sense of is where is the gossip? Like there were three really effective bombings. Why did they stop? Hmm. Like they never got caught. They were increasing, you know, in violence and terror. Um, Like So where did they go? And... Why aren't people still talking about it? Like, right. So that was the thing that I was just like, I have to understand this. Where is the gossip? Um, so I get down this rabbit hole and I begin to realize rather quickly that the reason that there is gossip, mm. a lot of it, it's just not here. Right. It's down in Birmingham, it's yeah. over in Chattanooga. And so I start to realize the folks who bombed us are from the same network of folks who bombed the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, mm. who bombed, um, I can't think of his first name, that little Godfrey boy down mm-hmm. in Jacksonville's house, um, who blew up things in Chattanooga. <laughs> and I was just like, I mean, especially with the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, you know, because those little girls died um you know and the thing is that was 1963 my dad is older than them right and he's still alive Mm -hmm. and vital you know like they i just saw them two weeks ago and the idea that these little girls should be grandmas now right right you know that they deserve these whole lives and it seems like we've kind of, as a culture, done a good job of being, you know, we're sure real sad that that happened. And, you know, we take pleasure in that we sent a couple of the people responsible for that to jail. But it was a whole network of people. And we haven't been honest with ourselves about that. And we haven't been honest with ourselves about why they weren't ever caught. Right. Um, and, and a lot of people don't realize, and I don't mean to detract from, oh, no. from, from what you're saying now, but the, um, a lot of people don't realize how common bombings were in the United States um, before the, I, the 80s, I would assume. Right. I, mean, I know that in the, the first half of the 70s, there was a domestic bombing almost right. daily. Um, and then, and then in a, before that, in relation to sort of racial terror or sort of racist terror, right. um, there were bombings on a, on a, on a regular basis. Right. Well, you could get a stick of dynamite for 25 cents at any 
hardware store in yeah. Nashville. It was one of the reasons <laughs> that they just simply could not trace the dynamite. Right, it was Because so it was like everybody, they used it to blow up cesspools and blow wells for themselves. And, like, there are so many stories in the Tennessee and in, in the banner, the papers, from of Nashville papers, of, like, oh... Boys will be boys. Some high school boys got a hold of some dynamite and some blasting caps and left it at an elementary school. Right. And little Joe Smith blew his fingers off. And I'm like, <laughs> this isn't boys. Will I know a lot of boys, and right. none of them are like, let's go get some elementary school kids to mutilate themselves. Like, right. that's, right. 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 like right. that's like one of the signs of being a serial killer yeah. is harming small things. Um, but, yeah, it's just real, like, everybody is like, let's solve our problems by blowing things up. Sure. And, that, I mean, that was, that's been, again, a thing I don't mean to say facetiously, but that seems that that's been replaced by the omnipresence of uh, automatic weapons. Right? Yes. Is that, is right. that right. you used to be able to blow, well, you used to be able to, this is very similar, actually. <laughs> right. yeah. You used to be able to get dynamite at a hardware store, which now people might be like, oh, whoa, that's crazy. Right, but now right. you can get a, a, a quasi-automatic rifle that you can turn into an automatic rifle right. at Walmart. So, yeah, exactly, <laughs> like exactly. The, it's a very, one was traded off right. with the other. And it is really interesting to watch because they were having literally the exact same arguments. Can we like regulate dynamite? Don't people have a right to have sticks of dynamite if they want to? Is it, you know, like they eventually got where you had to write down your name if you bought some dynamite. Yeah, yeah. And my God, you'd think like the flailing and fainting of shock that people sure. are doing of like, oh, the government doesn't have a right to know if I have a stick of dynamite. And it's like... <laughs> It's both hilarious and it's also like now the fact that you cannot go to True Value and get dynamite. Sure. No one thinks that's weird. I don't feel. I actually feel weird now that you're telling me that you could get dynamite at True Value. Right? (laughs) Right? That's how quickly the norm changed. Yes, exactly. And I think we all agree that we don't want anybody with a quarter to be able to go buy a stick of dynamite. Pretty happy about that. Pretty happy about that. No, it's and so can you t- so can you tell me? I, by the way, there's there is a person who is vacuuming right next to us because I was 45 minutes late to this because my dog was lost. So I want to thank you <laughs> so much for your patience and your cool attitude towards that. But um um, what? Okay, I'm from Maine. Yes, and I try to be super. How do I say this? I try to be conscious of my biases towards the South. Right. Because I make an assumption that I feel like is pretty true that um, the that the nor- Northeast in particular's racism just manifested in a different way. Right. Right. That right. We, like, it's not like... It was like a pious people who no, who, no, who, no. who were incapable of being racist, and and I still have friends who write about race daily in right. in, in, in New England in particular. And, however, because there is a fake enlightened attitude in New England about race, right? People don't feel weird if you talk about race. They might feel weird about once responsibility comes right. into the picture, right. but it's not strange in here. Strange in there. I recorded an episode a couple uh, a couple episodes ago about an encounter I had with an Uber driver, and then I, I tied it to like the the racist state politics here. But then yes. I also tied it to the racist state politics in Maine, 
And I had listeners who who are very, I, I feel like sort of like very thoughtful and like people or whatever be like, why are you talking about this? Like right. why? And, and I was, and I would, I laid out, I was like, well, you know, it's not, I don't necessarily, I don't even know how to say that it's not a thing, but it's like, I'm just acknowledging a thing. Right. right? And they're like, right. oh, okay. I'm so not used to acknowledging the thing. Right. That, right. that it made me uncomfortable for a second. But now that I understand, like, I'm, I'm cool. It, it seems like what you're diving into still is a hard thing to acknowledge. I imagine people even recoil uh, to some degree when you you approach them about a thing that happened six, over six years ago. Oh, truly, truly. Um, but I think I'm not a philosopher, so I do not know if I'm going to get this reference right. But I, I hope believe... that everyone preempts what they say by saying I'm not a philosopher. <laughs> I believe it was Fanon that said that racism is a white problem acted yes. out on black bodies. Yes, yes. And I think that's true. Like, there is no way, there's nothing black people can do to solve racism except for avoid white people. Right. And I still, even after all this research, which has like killed all of my faith in America, mm. um, believe that a pluralistic society where people of different backgrounds are free and share with each other is the best kind of society. I'm still committed to that. Um, but how can that happen if white people don't talk about racism and don't talk about how racism has curdled us? Sure. That's you a know, great point. Yeah. And there's a way in which, like, obviously you don't want to make it seem like, oh, racism is the worst for white people, <laughs> because that's just another way for white people to not actually deal with racism is by, but we are the true victims. Right. But there is a way in which I think it's really mm -hmm. important to acknowledge this is our problem, and it's our problem to solve, and what a luxury to never have to think about it. And right. to never have to talk about it, that's not something that any other American gets except white people. Right. You right. know, like, they always have to be aware of, like, what stupid racist thing a white person might do sure, <laughs> at any sure. given moment that might hurt them. Um, the other thing that's crazy that I've found is, like, if a white supremacist will talk to you, they'll talk about race. They'll talk right. about racism. They have really <laughs> um, complex belief systems about mm -hmm. race, and they're happy to share them. So we've kind of like, as white people, abdicated any thought about whiteness and what that <clears throat> constitutes to racists. Sure. Yeah. And which, and and they'll they'll bemoan the idea of identity politics. Right. right. They'll be like, it's it's the the. A certain kind of sort of America hating American has right. turned this into a situation where it's identity politics. It's uh, right. identity politics, but like racism itself is identity politics. Exactly, exactly. And right. like I said, they have really complex ideas about what it means to be white that I think are vile. But it's like obviously they found value in spending this much time thinking about whiteness, whereas a lot of the rest of us as white people have just been like, let's not think about it, let's not talk about it. Right. And like with the case with these bombings, there's an attitude in Nashville of, well, no one got hurt, so we can just leave that in the past. But like, not only did, has my research shown people did get hurt, they just got hurt in other cities. Mm. Another thing I found, which was, so I made a spreadsheet, 
and ev- the name of every racist I came across went in that spreadsheet so that I could track names and sure. see if people kept reappearing. Now, I didn't – a lot of them were just members. Um, there was – Fred Stroud had a renegade Presbyterian church over here <laughs> in Buena Vista that was devoted to racism. Um so a lot of people were just members of his church. But, you know, I was like, well, here's a racist church. I, if I can track members, I should keep an eye on members. And some of them were uh, just, you know, on witness lists for court cases or whatever. But I, so I didn't look into every one of them. But sometimes, like, if a person popped up two or three times, I would investigate them to see if they might be involved in these bombings. So I have 300 people on my list, and I have three patricides, hmm. or attempt. one was an attempted one, the person didn't succeed. But so three of these racists were either killed by their children or their children tried to kill them. And I looked into those murders as best I could, and like, I, I have such sympathy for those killers. Yeah. Yeah. Like. They're a person who will be involved. Like We have this myth as white people that like, oh, he seemed so nice. Like, I just I couldn't imagine James Earl Ray, a bad guy. How could I know or whatever? But it's like, no, really, if you're the kind of person who would blow up an elementary school, you're also the kind of person who beats the shit out of their kids. Yeah, absolutely. So and this is a thing that I've heard, not just with the the list of people that you're talking about. I mean, there have been a couple of a couple like actually recent modern high profile situations in which the children of white supremacists have killed their parents or attempted to kill their parents. Right. Yeah, exactly. And And, you know, it's like, so I feel like we've just offloaded our responsibility as a society to deal with these people onto kids. Right. And so I just like, it's really tragic. And it's also then like, so there were victims, there were even local victims. We just didn't have to see them. Sure. And I just find that like to be so heartbreaking and frustrating you know, because like in the case of the Hattie Cotton bombing, the only person even tangentially involved in that bombing who ever went to prison was one of those kids. Yeah. Huh. You know, it's like, right. is that justice? Right. Like that doesn't feel like justice. You right. know? <laughs> well, it's like when I, I can't remember, I can't, I can't remember her name. It's it seems like it happened just yesterday but it wasn't but the the woman Abu Ghraib right the woman who right oh what was her name it, anyway she like one the one of one of the people who were held accountable was essentially the lowest ranking right. officer and right. not any of the people who were you know who were told to take charge and we see something very similar happening on the border right. now it's like you know there will probably be a handful of low ranking people who are held accountable in one way or another right. while everyone else and right. that's i mean that seems to be common that's like what the red army faction was so upset about in 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 uh, germany when they started sort of getting upset was they saw all the nazis put into uh, positions of power and lower ranking people sort of right. were the ones who fell. Right, exactly. And so that's a, so that's nice to know that it just never ends. Uh, right. How does that how does that affect you? Well, I'll tell you um the the thing that has shook me the hardest, which I'm is embarrassing too because it's so naive. Like it's just such a privilege for this to be the thing that shakes me, especially because like my dad 
the minute he heard I was doing this research, he started like once a month. He calls me and is like, the FBI is going to kill you. <laughs> I'm like, Dad. He's like, no, I lived through the 60s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, they're going to kill you. You have to stop doing this. Yeah. And I'm like, no, Dad, they're going to drown me in bureaucracy <laughs> yeah. or ignore me. or Like, it's fine. Like, that's <laughs> not. And so very recently, I'm sure you saw um, David Garrow had that article he wrote. It's been a big controversy where he said that these FBI files show that King was present during a rape. Well, I've seen those FBI files, mm -hmm. and um, for many, many reasons, I think Garrow is wrong about what that file indicates, um, but I also like don't have enough hubris to sit here and go through it with you, considering sure, sure, sure. he's an expert, and I'm like literally a loudmouth. Sure. That's my only qualification for writing this book. But in those files... The FBI is talking internally about all the awesome things that they have done to infiltrate um, harmful organizations. And JFK, or not JFK, sorry, Hoover starts bragging about how they run the Klan in Tennessee mm, mm. and have since the Klan revival. And then he specifies that it's the United Klan of America, sure. which is not the violent clan that I'm looking at. But I, like, so he's bragging because the point is supposed to be, like, because they run the clan, they can focus the clan into nonviolent activities. Right, right, right. But, like, people in Tennessee got their houses blown up. Right. King died here. Mm -hmm. Like, what does non, like, if this is nonviolent, what, what was violent, you right. know, like that's just, and also like why, I mean, I could see taking over the clan in order to shut it down, but taking it over just to run it in a way that's more pleasing to you. Like mm -hmm. you're the bad guys. Right. That's, I run the clan. There's, you can't say that and be a good guy. That's just not how it works. Yeah. And I just think, because I had this naive belief that even if your local authorities were corrupt, if you could get attention for your story, someone would come help. Mm -hmm. And I really naively believed that that was the FBI. And maybe not everybody in the FBI, but there, there would be some good G-man right. who would hear your plea and he, he would come fix things because that's what the federal government did is like balance out for you know local and state corruption and you know i guess as i got older in my mind i knew that couldn't possibly be true but your mind can know things and your heart mm. does not know it but reading through this stuff and and you know like watching the fbi move witnesses away from where the cops could get to them and, you know, changing dates on forms sure. so it looks like they informed people ahead of an event when they didn't and all this stuff. And I'm just like, there was no help. Mm. Like, if you were a black person in the South in the 50s, there wasn't any help. Mm. There was nobody. Like, there was, 
There wasn't, there was just was nobody. No one was coming yeah. to help you if you needed it. And like I said, I, intellectually I knew that, but mm-hmm. to see it play out just over and over and over again, it it's hard. And I also feel like what a like spoiled, privileged thing for me to be like sure. bemoaning, like, oh, it's so hard because like people had to live through this, right. you know, right. or not, or they didn't make it. Right. But it's still like it when you think about like how am I an American mm-hmm. now with this knowledge, like. Yeah. What does it mean to love your country mm. if you know this is your country? Right. I I don't have a good answer for that at all. I don't, you know, I think it's better to know than to not know. Mm-hmm. But I'm not, I don't know what to do with that knowledge. Like, I don't yet know how to let it transform me. Right, right. Well, I mean, in reconciling that, that the sort of either revisionist or ignorant idea of the country with like what the actual situation is. I mean, it's, it's really the main tension between people who recoil, you know, at make America great again and people who don't, right. Right. It's like, it's like for anyone, for anyone who is aware of any of what you're saying, right. When you hear make America great again, and you're remembering a time when, you know, like even, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18 years later than what you're talking about, you had the FBI, like, uh, you know, uh, disrupting free lunch, lunch programs from the black Panthers and, you know, and, and killing, right. you know, killing young black leaders. Um, you make America great again. Sounds a lot like, yeah, <laughs> sounds like a, a lot threat. like a threat. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and what I mean, how do you feel about imagine when you started this? I don't know, it's like weird to see that the clan's popular again in its ways, like, and it's not the clan anymore because right. it's because right. it's sort of acknowledged to be silly, but it's people who are friends or friendly with or 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 you know, uh proteges of David Duke in one yes, way or another right. or yeah. of, of David Duke's ideology and right. you have I mean uh, you know some sometimes the their internet loudmouths and some of them are gay somehow like I don't oh, know <laughs> but JB Stoner was gay Really really Yes one really. of the Atlanta Temple bombers was gay really? Oh my god it's just it's I mean it, I'm it, so nothing is different Nothing <laughs> no literally no, it is Except for the fact that they will, like, more often call each other perverts sure. in the past. No, no. It's it's honestly kind of amazing because it's like, well, you've had 60 years. Like, why hasn't your thought, like, progressed? Mm-hmm. Or, like why, like, why is it still the same? I don't know. You know, I mean, I feel like any other political philosophy over the course of 60 years is going to change some. And they're still like, we hate Jews who are secretly running the world. Right. Like, I mean, which I guess they've been saying, you know, for thousands of years, but it's still like really weird that they haven't come up with anything better than that as just like, or different, you know, like Mm -hmm. how, how, how is the stagnancy of that still so attractive is you know, kind of baffling to me. They don't ever seem to be like, oh, well, I used to think this, but now I think this. Like, they don't even have a new conspiracy. Right. You know, like, 
you'd think in 60 years they would have been like, well, no, it's not the Jews. It's really all guys named Bill, <laughs> some of whom are Jewish. Yeah. Of course, that's why we were fooled for so long. Yeah. <laughs> but now we're we're on to the Bills. And right. Like, no. Yeah, no, it's still like, let's still beat this same dead horse. And, um, you know, it's funny because. So John Casper was a leader of the movement down here in Tennessee, but he came from New Jersey. He was a protege of Ezra Pound, hmm. and <laughs> which is funny because it means that, like, in Nashville, not only did you have, like, these racist ideologies kind of coming together and influencing each other, but there is a literary component because Casper is down here as Pound's protege and also Pound's publisher. <laughs> and Donald Davidson is running a hate group out of Vanderbilt, mm. which also has this aesthetic component because he's really concerned about the role of white Southerners. Right. And so it's funny to watch those things like come together. Because at first I was like, oh, well, we have two you know, racist poets Certainly, they'll like, I don't know, get together and like have a racist poetry anthology or some, I don't know. Like, <laughs> sure, sure. But they hated each other. Right, Davidson right. wanted nothing to do with Casper. And so I ended up like kind of down this weird, deep rabbit hole of like, well, why didn't they get along? But I think it does have to do like with their aesthetic interest, right? Because Pound could be a fascist anywhere in the world, mm -hmm. whereas Davidson really believed that the South mattered. And right. that white people derived their power and their creative energy literally from the land they came from. So what's interesting about Davidson is you can see why he's racist. Mm -hmm. Because the power that he believes the land has is a power black people could access right. if they had opportunity. And I keep thinking, like, if you're Donald Davidson and you're hanging out with the fugitives and then the agrarians, I mean, like, some of the best literary minds the South has ever put forth. And you know you're good, but you're not Robert Penn Warren good. Mm. You're not John Crow Ransom good. <laughs> and so, like, you can see his anxiety, like, when he's talking about Langston Hughes. Mm -hmm. Because he knows Hughes is good. Yeah. And so, right, like, oh, no, what if, like, there's an extraordinary black person who's had the freedom and has learned to tap into the land? Like, what happens to Davidson? Right. Right. He's right. got to keep black people down because he's not that great that he could rise to the top of a larger, you know, pot of cream or whatever sure. metaphor you want to use. Um, whereas I think, you know, Pound was just like, of course I'm the greatest. There is no doubt, you know, yeah. but um, so it's, it's interesting the way that like their aesthetic projects and their racism feed into each other and then put them in conflict with each other. Is that, I mean, is the form of racism you just described, like how, I mean, with the exception of the, the literal, not literary, but like the literal element of it about like the land, et cetera, which I mean, sort of runs deep in a lot of like large, oh, large, right, yeah. far reaching nationalist projects. I mean, how, I guess like how different is that from, from like modern white supremacist belief today? Because like, it's, like we said at the beginning, it's like, this isn't the cream of the crop usually. Right. Um, um, they must be aware at some level that 
the, or a, a subconscious level that they are not and right. that that honestly anyone with half the opportunity can and probably will do better in every right. every sort of uh, every situation um um it, it seems like that's the I mean, I, I sort of don't think that people have like a natural tendency towards fascism, but I do, I do think they have a natural tendency towards insecurity. And yes. Right. <laughs> and right. It sounds like that description is sort of perfect for where right. a lot of people are subconsciously. Right. And I think, you know, it's really interesting um, because so Asa Carter was also, um, so he's a Birmingham clan leader. Mm. But he was here in Nashville helping, like, protest against school desegregation. And he, you know, he went out, he ran a really violent section of the Klan. Um, His Klan attacked Nat King Cole on Mm. stage. Mm. (laughs) Like, yeah, right? Like, wild i know um and then they mutilated a black veteran Mm. in north alabama they're just nasty and then he went on to be george wallace's speechwriter the segregation now segregation forever that's asa carter's line forrest carter the author of the education of little little tree i think Mm. it's called and um the creator of the outlaw Josie Wales, <laughs> who claimed to have been the grandson of a Cherokee Indian from the mountains of East Tennessee. That was also Asa Carter. Wow. And wow. so he got to reinvent himself right. as an actually pretty okay novelist. Mm. And like, he was one of Oprah's earliest. I don't think that she had her book club yet, but she got on her show and recommended that everybody read The Education of Little Tree. And, you know, it was finally people in Alabama were like, that's just Asa Carter. Like, right. what the hell? Like, this isn't some guy from East Tennessee. Asa's not, we know his grandparents. Sure. Like, he's not. A Cherokee Indian, <laughs> like yeah. what is happening? And then you know that he was like slightly disgraced, but how disgraced you can be when Clint Eastwood performs one of your characters? Right, right, right. And he wasn't he wasn't James Frey disgraced, right? Right, <laughs> exactly. He did he didn't fudge a memoir a right. little a tiny bit. Right. <laughs> and I'm just like. Even, like, reading through newspaper articles where he was finally uncovered, like, the way that they downplayed his violence, and I'm like, he's literally one of the most violent Klansmen of the 50s, Mm. and you guys are trying to find a way to redeem him enough that you don't have to give up Josie Wales. Right, right. And I'm like... Yeah. Literally, like all all white people in the South do, are write romances about ex Confederates. Right. You literally just pick another one, like, <laughs> like you can give up Josie Wales. It will literally, like, or don't, but just don't like worship Carter right. as like some genius, and which is also like kind of humbling as a writer to realize, like. You could be that far off the rails, mm-hmm. and if you're like a white guy, the whole society will just somehow like find a way to redeem you. Like, yeah, 
he, oh, he was a clan member. He was a clan member. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, like calling, you know, the a nuclear bomb like a slight bit of gunpowder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that lead, that leads into this question I've been wondering this whole time: is that you are you're a writer of of you're a writer, yes, right, yeah. and you're a writer of of fiction, nonfiction, like both, yes, right, yeah. Um. Okay, so I this just this morning was like was just thinking because I saw I saw a picture of a guy at this is the, today is our is our, our nation's Independence Day right <laughs> and I saw a picture of a guy at like Trump's thing uh, Trump's celebration that I think his I think his shirt said something like black people should be held accountable or black people should get in trouble for using racist slurs too and I was just like this just like the layers that are here are profound. Right. And I'd said to my girlfriend, I was like, I used to think that if we were just honest about our ignorance, it would be easier. And I was wrong. Like, right. it's like, it's, I mean, it's not like I want to go back. Oh no, There's no, no going right. back. Right. But I was just like, Oh, it's just terrible. No matter what, like it's, you know, and I also used to think the seventies seemed like a fun time. It would be cool to go through that again. Right. And it is not no. true. So, um, what is it like to be a person who writes fiction and to, in almost no time at all, end up in a place where if you wrote about literally, if you wrote a non, if you wrote about today's nonfiction five years ago, people would be like, that is over the top. Like, right. what is it right like to be a person who, who trades in ideas and especially some, some, some fantastic right, in, right. A, in a fantastic time? Well, honestly, I haven't. Since Trump was elected, I have not written fiction. Mm. I just have not because it it feels trite yeah. and dishonest. Yeah. And I I get so much out of it that I'm really hoping that I won't always feel that way because I love fiction. I love sure. writing fiction. I love telling people wonderful stories. But like what are you supposed to say? <laughs> You know, like at a time like this, like because it's not just that we put babies in cages. Mm. It's not just that like white supremacists march through the streets openly. It's all that has always been America. Mm -hmm. But people used to have some shame about it. Mm. And there, the amount of people who have no shame, who who can just be like, well, their parents shouldn't have brought them here, right. or you know, you just have to be nicer to them, or whatever it is, like as if there's some level of appeasement that we should do that would then cause them to suddenly stop behaving like monsters. It, it's like it that deeply shames me like the mm. amount of bystanders who are okay with what's happening is deeply shameful and it's also like i'm kind of like because i experience fiction as being like so soul expanding and like this really intimate thing that you do like you're sitting down and trying to like capture this thing in your head so that you can put someone else in that same space. It's like this really intimate thing when somebody tells you that they read your story and they, you know, that it meant something to them or they laughed or, you know, 
that's this kind of profound sharing that is so wonderful. It's really hard to explain. Like, just to tell a story and have it touch someone is so great. And the truth is, like, I kind of feel like, fuck most y'all. Like, I don't want to share with you. I don't feel safe with you. I don't feel like I want to invite you into my head and show you wondrous things. Like, I want to build a barbed wire fence around me and keep you out. (laughs) And, like, I hope that won't always be the case, you know. But I I do think that that's a thing that we haven't figured out. I mean, people kind of know that it's going to be a problem because they keep throwing this civility word out there and complaining about civility. But it's deeper than that. Because, like, I, I feel completely betrayed and distrustful because nothing Trump's doing is anything but what he promised he'd do. Right. Like there is no surprise. And it really irritates me when people are surprised because that this was all completely foreseeable. Nothing he has done has been unforeseeable. It, it just, a lot of us saw it coming right. from a long way away. And the idea that somehow there's supposed to be some point when I'm supposed to be nice to the people who did this to us. Like, I'm not going to go, you know, beat people up in the street or anything. But like, no, I can't be nice to them. Like, them voting for him feels like such an act of hostility towards me and the people I care about Mm. that, like, I can't pretend. Like, I just can't. Like, what would civility even look like? Right. You know, it's just like that's I, I stopped writing. I stopped writing a column um, a couple months after he was le- he was elected because I mean the thing that the thing that got me in a in a really big way, and I don't want, want this to necessarily be like sort of like Trump time, no, but right, I think right. it, I think it does relate so much to what you're talking about. People think that what the time you're talking about is a separate time, and right. we are still in the same time. Yes, you know? and right. So and so I like. The thing that got me was I think it was like maybe a it was like maybe a Washington Post profile about um, the son of the leader of Stormfront. Yes, right. And my favorite and he, the son of the leader of Stormfront used to be a outspoken sort of uh, white supremacist. It since had changes of heart, but still is in touch with his father. And my the most poignant piece of that story that to me should have ended any conversation at all about how these things are connected is it was him and his father. T- you're talking about Trump and his father, the head of the largest, you know, sort right. of like na- yeah. like white nationalist, white supremacist uh, uh, website in the world, longest running, um, said to his son, um, "Can you believe it's Trump that's going to be the one that's popularizing our our ideology?" And and I was like, "Oh, okay. Well, we have great. We have it in writing. Yeah, right. This right. will sh- surely." Right. Surely right. this is enough. Right. And then when I, you know, I, I wrote that and saw people's responses, saw people's responses to that, I quit everything for a year and a half. Yeah. I was like, well, what the fuck am I supposed to do? So let me tell you, <laughs> <laughs> let me tell, as we're talking about, like, the more things change, the more they stay the same. So very early on in the process, a woman, a PhD, Rachel Martin, who's been writing about Clinton, Tennessee, mm. told me. If you think you're going to do anything about this, do every FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act, request you can to the FBI right now. Mm. 
Mm. They're going to turn almost everything down. So be prepared for that and start having a backup plan. But you need to do it now because there's going to be some level of stonewall and you have to give, you know, you want to have enough time to, if it's possible to get over the hurdles, to get over the hurdles. So I submitted many, many Freedom of Information Act requests to the FBI. One of them was for the file on the Luby bombing. Mm-hmm. I remember Councilman Luby was a sitting U.S. politician when his house blew up. So that is an assassination attempt mm-hmm. on a sitting U.S. politician. The FBI wrote me back and said they destroyed that file. Hmm. Unsolved assassination right, attempt. Right. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> like, why would you do that? <laughs> what? Um, so for a year, I tried to figure out why the FBI would have done that. And then, long story short, very long story, convoluted story, um, Cons- Congressman Cooper wrote a letter to the head of the FBI and the FBI then admitted the file had not been destroyed. Mm. So now I have a FOIA request in to get that, but they've like more hoops to jump through, but I will get it at some point. Um, Yesterday, the FBI announced that they had accidentally destroyed all of their files on Stormfront. So again, it's like... Oh my God. It's just the same. Like, I feel like I could just go in and like, Right. Do find and replaces for KKK and right. replace it with neo Nazis, and they'd be contemporary stories. Oh my god! It's, oh my god! It's, and important. Like I feel the worst, not just regular liberal white guilt, but I feel I feel the worst for any black and brown people who are like, look, like, yeah. y- for whatever reason, y'all thought it stopped after '68, right? And right. we were telling you it didn't, right? And thank you. Now that it's so nakedly public, you're you're back at the table, some of you, right? But right. but I, you know, I that that is my that's where my heart breaks the most. Well, and it blows my mind when people are like, well, how do you know R- Trump is racist? You can't say Trump is racist, and I'm like, his dad was in the Klan. <laughs> And then he and his dad set out for 60 years to discriminate against black and brown people in New York City. Like yeah. They called for the murder of five children who were wrongfully convicted yes. of a... <laughs> I'm like, are we not allowed to know our history anymore? Sure. Like, how... Like, there's a way in which the innocence of white people is so weaponized that mm. it's like, somehow if you're not constantly forgetting history you're betraying your country or right, something right, right, but it's right. like it's an affront and it, manif- it manifests in a lot of different ways it's not exclusive i mean although you could call u.s imperialism racist because it is in all of the ways it is but right. it even comes down to i mean i remember my my entire left-leaning family um for, you know like B- boston liberal family uh, after 9-11, like immediately forgetting, <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> forgetting, forgetting everything that they, they believed in one way or another. Cause I think, I think in particular there is, there is, you're calling it weaponized is amazing and true because I think that there's a particular self-defense in white supremacy where once there's a feeling of vulnerability, um, it is, it is doubled or tripled down with a feeling of, of, of a lashing out. Yes. And, yeah. and it's, it's a, it's a. You know, I I am not a philosopher either. I, although I was an undergraduate at a third-rate college, 
who studied political philosophy, <laughs> and it took me six and a half years to do it. But um, but I do I do think that like when I think about sort of how ideology works, I mean it is it is it really boggles the mind right. because it operates like it operates like I don't know if you I, I remember so vividly when I was in elementary school and they showed us an illustration of what the cell of HIV looks like. And HIV basically looks like a spike ball, yes, you know, right, right. And, and to like both like penetrate and protect. Right. And that is, I feel like what, what racist ideology looks like. Right. You know? And you know, it's funny because I was just talking to a friend at lunch about this very thing, about the way that white supremacy does, because it has to, in order to perpetuate like, it kind of misshapes all white people. Mm-hmm. So it feels like part of your journey as a person who doesn't want to be a giant asshole is to figure out how you're misshaped mm-hmm. and fix it or at least try to mitigate it in some ways. But it's embarrassing, too, I think, right? You know, to admit, like, well, I'm trying to be a good person, but I'm a racist. Right. And I don't want to be, but, you know, Everybody in my whole life has always told me in all these ways, like out loud and not out loud, that I just am, you know, I mean, just at the level of like thinking of the fact that, I mean, you know, I wouldn't say that I've ever trusted the police, Mm -hmm. but I have never been afraid of the police ever. It's just not anything that would ever have occurred to me because like even if I was somehow mishandled i i just would take it for granted that that would be fixed right absolutely yeah or 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 if you called them i mean i've been in in situations with um with people of color where uh, this happened actually the other day Uh, i was i was driving on trinity over in east nashville and um there was a car that was broken down it was like a it wasn't even it was a suburban it was broken down (laughs) and there were five black guys who were pushing the car up a hill and so I stopped my car. I say that they're black for a specific reason. They'll come up in a minute. But I, I, I parked my car, and came ran down to like help them help them out. And subconsciously, I knew why. I mean, I was doing it to help, right? For, first right. of all, but I was also like, like this is a horrendous thing to know about the structure that you're a part of. But I was like, there should be a white guy there, right? So that so that it, would, people know the car's just broken right, down. Exactly. Yeah. And then the police showed up. And one of the and an officer came out and we all looked back at the officer and we were all like, I, it was like one of those things where you immediately feel like a room go cold, but we're all outside in Nashville. Right. And it was not cold at all. Right. And we were all like, uh, and then we were all, there was like almost like a laugh, like a tension release laugh when the cop came to help us out. Oh, wow. And right. he, and we were all like, oh, cool. And then, and so, so the cops on one side. I'm on the other side. There are two guys on one side, two guys on the other side, the guy in the middle of us. And that guy, like, I don't know. I don't want to put thoughts into his head, but he looked at the cop and he looked at me and I'm wearing like, you know, like, like J crew shorts and like, what, like, like a, like a, um, pastel top, you know, he looks at the two of us and he just starts laughing and laughing and laughing. And I'm sure it was like tension relief, you know, sort of like the depletion of tension. Right. Because like for him, when a cop shows up, it's a much different circumstance than for me when a cop shows up. Right. Could you imagine? I mean, I'm just imagining for him, he's like, wait. Cops not asking to search the car. Right, right, right. Cops not giving us crap about like where we're going or what. Ha- you know, I mean, totally. it must just be like so bizarre to fall into this world where like, wait, the cop is just helping. Right, 
Right. <laughs> like what? Right. And like who know? And I'm like, and who knows how that dynamic would be different if another cop showed up? I mean, you yeah, know, you right, know. exactly. Well, I want to. I want to. I could easily talk about this for the rest of my life, and probably will. Right. Um, <laughs> but I want to. I want to thank you so much. Like this. This. It's so. It was so. It's so good to hear from you. Your writing is amazing. I look forward to reading, reading, uh, reading the book. But the, um, it was good to talk with you because this podcast for me is an integration into this city, right. but also right. it's a reintegration into making stuff. Right. Because I feel like I have been in a in a place of confusion. Yes. Uh, for right. the past couple of years. Yeah. So I'm I'm happy to see how you're going about it, and it's a uh, it's inspiring to hear. Right. Also, I wanted to say welcome to Nashville. <laughs> Like a thing that has really struck me about your podcast is like what a bag of dicks we are. Like <laughs> new people come here it's okay like we're just going like I was tra- thinking about that on the drive this morning that I mean there is kind of like a performative bitterness towards sure. new people that has always been here right. but like Unless you're last, unless you're like a descendant of Martin Chartier, mm. or you are a Native American person, we are all new here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, totally. And I listening to your podcast over and over, and listening to all these newcomers who feel this kind of anxiety about, like, oh, are are we ruining the city? No, you're mm. not ruining the city. Please feel welcome. And kick people who don't make you feel welcome. <laughs> there's, like, there's an amazing line. I just saw the last black man in San Francisco last night, which I would just suggest everyone to. Because it's not only a film about gentrification, but it's a film about friendship, which is lovely. Right. You know? And one of the lines is is a is a uh, the young black protagonist overhears uh, two women who are sort of doing the two two women on a bus two white women on a right. bus doing the performative like oh, I hate San Francisco I came here for this and whatever this happened and now it's like this. And he says to them, he says to them, you're not allowed to hate San Francisco. You're not allowed to hate San Francisco unless you love San Francisco. And I was like, and I think that that's what a lot of people are struggling with, right? right? Is right. like when your loved one is going through some sort of a change and right. you, you, all you can do is attribute it to like, you know, that they like switch their brand of cigarettes. Or right. Like, right. <laughs> but it's like, I mean, you know, in fairness, Nashville has been jerks to newcomers, like, <laughs> Since its founding, like, I'm sure, like, I'm positive that Robertson's group was like, oh, I can't wait for Donaldson and all the women to get here. And then they got here and they're like, oh, I forgot what a dick Donaldson is. (laughs) Or like during the Civil War, you certainly know this story, like during the Civil War prostitution was legal (laughs) in Nashville, um, but nobody liked nobody. I mean, obviously dudes liked it, but the... City fathers didn't like it, so they put all the prostitutes on a paddle boat and sent them to Louisville. Yeah. And then Louisville was like, go home, girls. <laughs> so they all came back. Um, but I think, right, like, oh, we can't have all these women from the countryside coming into town and ruining it with their sex work, sure. even though, like, we're all benefiting from the fact that they're here doing this sex work. Um, so I guess I would just say, like, if you're new here and you feel like people are looking down on you, welcome. That's just part of how we haze people. But also, at least you aren't, haven't been put on a paddle boat and sent to Louisville. So we're getting a little better. Like about old timey prostitutes. Right. <laughs> awesome. Thank you again, Betsy. Right, it's so well, nice to talk with you. Thank you for having me. Yeah.
All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Nashville Demystified. Thanks to Jesse LaFontaine for all things related to sound post-production. Um, thank you for listening. Thanks to uh, Tim Burns, who does show-specific illustrations um, for each of our shows. You can see them on the website and on social media, the various places that we are. Um, like and review and do all that. It really helps. It really, really helps. Um, and makes people take us seriously for some reason. Uh, if anyone's taking us seriously, it's because other listeners helped that happen. <laughs> it's nothing to do with me. Um, thank you all so much. I love doing the show. I appreciate you joining me and, uh, I'll talk with you soon.